and I'm speaking partly that way, but also I am a psychotherapist and 20 years of practice with lots of experience around talking about sex. So. Yeah, and we're we're married. And we're married. <clears throat> so. We get to talk about this stuff together. Yes, we do. All right. Uh, so. Uh, today, in this series, uh, we're, we're part of this, we're doing this larger um, uh, series, Just Sex, Just Money, and Just Power. And uh, this is all part of our year of living justice. We're trying to learn what does it mean, you know, the, the phrase social justice is a big buzzword uh, in all around the culture today. Uh, what does the Bible have to say about living justly, living in a just way? And uh, so this whole year has been exploring that. And these three areas, uh, sex, money, and power, are the areas that uh, uh, everybody, uh, Christians, non-Christians, we, we seem to trip ourselves up in these areas very frequently. And so it's important that we take a little bit of time and focus just on uh, these areas. Uh, often, uh, if you've been around Bethel for more than a year or so, you've seen this image. This is an ancient uh, ziggurat and uh, ziggurat in the ancient Mideast was a uh, it was a temple and uh, there'd be the staircase up to uh, heaven so to speak and at the very top would be this they'd put uh, an idol they'd put a statue and uh, they would go there to worship that statue or that idol and so uh, often in America especially uh, we place uh, sex and money and power at the very top of those idols uh, scripture. Uh, talks about uh, how our hearts uh, make idols, and uh, it's been uh, said before that our hearts are idol-making factories, and these seem to be three areas that uh, everybody, including Christians, seem to make idols out of. So, first few weeks of the series, we are focusing on just sex, and yes, that's a double meaning. We're focusing on sex, but it also uh, uh, got the word just in there because of this year of living justice. So, today's... oh. Uh, you want to say about, uh, well, I guess we'll, we'll say what this, this uh, is about, uh, 10 myths Christians believe about sex. So our goal with this is just to begin some discussion. Um, we are aware that not everybody is going to agree with the things that we have to say, and we don't even always agree on everything. Um, and we can't even begin to cover all the myths that there are about sex. It's really hard stuff to talk about. Um, we're just asking that it, our hope, I mean, I think a lot of churches don't talk about sex because um, there's a lot of disagreement. Um, there's a lot of hot topics in our culture. And our hope would be that it would just begin conversation among all of us as a family, among families at home, um, and really for each of you to begin searching scripture for yourself and getting with God for yourself um, to decide where you're at and the things that you wrestle with. Um, and so... You know, this is hard stuff, and um, be nice to us, because you're not necessarily going <laughs> to like everything that, that we have to say. And I happen to be going out of town tonight for work, so if you disagree with anything that we say, talk to him. Um, Ouch. <laughs> All right. Okay. It just worked out okay. nicely for me. Um, so, myth uh, number one. Yeah. And uh, just to say, uh, there will be things, you know, some of you might agree with some of the things we're going to talk about. You might disagree with other things. That's okay. Um, uh, you don't have to crucify us yet, but it's, uh, it's, it is, um, I, I just encourage you to have an open heart, and if there's things you disagree with, um, you know, 
this is a this is a safe place. That's part of what Chew is. That we're this uh, meal we're going to have afterwards uh, to start talking about it with people. And this is a safe place to process this kind of stuff with. So, okay. So, moving on. Myth number one. The first big myth that so many Christians believe is that some people are more sexually broken than others. Uh, now. Uh, uh, it's a myth because, according to um, Scripture, all of us have been broken. When, when uh, starting with Adam and Eve, there was a shattering of the image of God in every single one of us, and we were actually born with that shattered image. Uh, you didn't just develop it. It wasn't just because of all the bad things that happened to you. You were actually born that way. And, uh, and that's affected everything in our lives. It's uh, impacted our relationships. It's impacted our thought life. It's impacted our emotions, and it's impacted our sexuality. And so everybody is actually bro born with a, a, the brokenness inside of them. There's this, uh, I briefly read in Romans chapter 1, uh, said, Paul writes this about this, this general brokenness. Um, he says, in, uh, starting in verse 22, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So there was this uh, brokenness that has actually entered into everybody. Now, it's true that some people, uh, uh, their, the, their behavior might be more severe and more uh, damaging uh, than other people's behavior uh, in, their in their expression of sexual brokenness. But there's, there's never a time when Christians can kind of smugly look down their nose at other people and say, well, yeah, at least I don't struggle with, you know, their sins, that person's sins. Or I'm, I'm better because I never did, I never committed that particular kind of sin, or something's better than me. i could be kind of being smug about that. So there isn't really room for smugness in that way. Yeah, and this one I just wanted to share a little story because I feel like in addition to we are all sexually broken, I feel like important to remember we're kind of surrounded constantly by sexual brokenness we're just we're just soaking in a culture and I had an experience yesterday which I debated sharing but I was on a bike ride um, yesterday afternoon um, this big loop I do down Shepherd Road and the River Road um, and I was going down this this part where a bunch of cars were parked and there was a man in a car and he put a very graphic image um, of male genitalia up against the window intentionally for me to see and he and I exchanged eyes and he clearly was had pleasure at my fear and my shock um, and in that little moment was sexual brokenness I mean for sure his sexual brokenness um, and it as a therapist I mean it breaks my heart to think of what that man must have gone through that that brings him pleasure to terrify women and what all the other women that have ridden by on their bikes that day. But also then I had to spend the rest of my bike ride thinking about that. It came home, told Andrew, it really affected him. He was really troubled by it. And it's just this ripple effect. And as a woman in America, I mean, I, I, and this is true for both genders, we experience things like that all the time. We're just permeated in a culture. And for sure the stuff that pops up on our screens. Um, but even little things, I was thinking about it's the 25th anniversary of the show Friends. Um, Full disclosure, I actually really enjoy the show Friends, and I, that might not be an okay thing for an elder to like, but I do. And But the thing is, Friends, even if you watch Friends, things shows like that, it is normative 
for Joey Chandler and Ross to always be looking for porn. That's just the norm. And that's not normal. It's not healthy. It's incredibly broken. And we might find it funny, but we're just, we're soaking in that stuff all the time. So we're all broken and we're constantly being broken and needing to be built up and repaired and loving one another through our brokenness. None of us are more broken than others. All right, second uh, one. Uh, sexual sins are the worst and maybe even the unpardonable uh, sin. Now, sexual sins can often feel like they are the worst. They can be devastating, life-altering. Your, whole, your life can take a completely different direction than you were hoping because of sexual sin, your own or somebody else's. Uh, it, there's all kinds of shame, both in society and also in church around it. Um, but there's no scriptural evidence that they are the worst sins. And uh, there's definitely no scriptural evidence that they are uh, the un- that this is the unpardonable sin. There is a passage in 1 Corinthians 6.18 that says that uh, sexual sin is against the body, and therefore it's different from some of the other kinds of sin. But being different doesn't mean it's worse or doesn't get you in more hot water than, uh, um, than other kinds of sin. Uh, and this is important to say because a lot of people, if they've sinned sexually or they've been sinned against sexually, uh, they, they often feel like, uh, well, my life is over, at least my life with God is over. Um, and they, they feel like now, from this point on, they're, they're excluded. Um, uh, and it's definitely not the unpardonable sin. If you look at the context of where that phrase comes from, the unpardonable sin, there's Mark chapter 3, verse 29, Luke chapter 12, verse 10. Uh, both of those talk about the unpardonable sin as being, uh, they call it blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And blaspheming against the Holy Spirit means, uh, it, to blaspheme basically means to call someone's character into question, uh, to call someone a liar. And uh, what the, Jesus was mad at the Pharisees because the Pharisees were saying that Jesus was, uh, caught, was delivering people from demons with the aid of demons. In other words, they were calling the Holy Spirit a demon. And that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said was unpardonable. It was not sexual sins. And in fact, we see Jesus treating people with sexual sins uh, much more tenderly, much more kindly than, uh, than he treated uh, the Pharisees, who most frequently had, he had to rebuke very severely. So, Yeah, and on this one, I just want to make a note about shame. Um, <clears throat> shame is an emotion that we all have. The only people that don't have shame are sociopaths, so you want to have some shame. It's something we all have a little bit of. We have it throughout the day. Um, and, uh, but it it's can be very destructive. Um, it makes us feel alone, and the main thing people want to do when they have shame is hide. And in community, we need to really be with each other and with God about shame. Shame heals by bringing it into the light, by having somebody else say, me too or I'm with you in this. And you can't drive out shame with more shame. You can only, Just like you can't drive out hate with more hate, it has to be driven out with love. You can't drive out shame except with compassion and the love of God. So if you're struggling with sexual shame, we need to be there for one another and bring it into the light. All of us have sexual shame. All right. Uh, the next one is very closely related. Because people, many people, many Christians believe this myth, Many of them believe this next myth is that you can't recover from sexual sin. Uh, so um, uh, now this often feels true uh, for many people. They feel like they, they, they can't recover. They've crossed the line. 
And because many people believe it's the unpardonable sin, many people believe that they can't recover. Um, but that contradicts scriptural evidence. Uh, there's plenty of people, David, Samson, Judah, all kinds of people throughout the Bible, and then all kinds of people throughout history uh, in, the, in the church who, who, have, who have recovered from sexual sin and recovered very beautifully and triumphantly. Um, there is uh, there's grace for all. I just want to, um, uh, if, if, if you don't remember anything else we say, I, I want the good news of what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say here. I want it to sink into your into your mind. So if you could turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 there for just a minute. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, says this. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. It's referring to many different sins, not just sexual immorality, but it includes sexual immorality and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. But, verse 4, but because of his great love for us. Who, who was he loving? He was loving the objects of wrath. He was loving us, you and me, all right? He was loving the sinners. He was loving the worst. But because of... His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And when did he do it? He did it when we were all cleaned up, we'd repented, our lives were back together. That's not what it says. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Even when I should hear some, I should hear a bunch of amens for this one because this is, because this is what saved you guys. Okay, so this is what saved me and you. <clears throat> Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. He's still talking about all these sinners who were against God and objects of wrath, uh, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, with or which God prepared in advance for us to do. you you, you got to, if, if sexual sin is holding you back, if the shame of it, if the devastating nature of it, if the devastating effects of it, uh, if you're still feeling it, if uh, you're still in the midst of that, you got to cling to these truths. you got to cling to these truths, because this, this is what's going to set you free. So, um, so it, it, you can recover from uh, sexual sin. And what, one more uh, passage briefly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 uh, there's this uh, there's this list of sexual sins. Um, uh, there's a list of many sins actually, and and sexual sin is is just one of them. Uh, and then verse 11 it says, and this is what some of you he's writing writing to Christians. This is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All right, so cling to those, cling to those truths, no matter what your sexual past or present may be.
Amen. And that brings us to our next myth. You can't recover from sexual trauma. So sexual trauma is unfortunately incredibly common, statistically. You know, in a room this size, there are dozens of people with sexual trauma. Sexual violation of all kinds just permeates our culture. And, and I will say myself, I have some sexual trauma and negative sexual experiences. So this is a we. This is not just others. I, I can resonate with this with myself. Sexual traumas include things like rape, abuse, molestation, incest, innuendo, slander, or discrimination against you due to your gender, including when one partner crosses any of the boundaries that the other partner doesn't want crossed. This can be verbal, and it can even happen inside of a marriage. It's also not as clean and clear as there's a victim and a perpetrator. Um, it's common for people who've been victimized to perpetrate as well. That's just a, a cycle that's common, and a very painful cycle. And part of the pain of being sexually traumatized comes from this belief. Um, and I think been being raised not in a Christian environment and becoming a Christian in my 20s, um, I feel like it's, just to be frank, like a little worse in the church um, that you're damaged goods if you've been sexually traumatized. And we're here to say that is not true. Um, so one of the things that I do in my therapy practice, I've been a therapist for 20 years, is a type of um, trauma recovery therapy called prolonged exposure. And it's for people with pretty complex PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And the majority of the people that I sit with um, have sexual trauma. Certainly some other kinds, but the majority, sexual trauma. Um, and it's incredibly brave for them to do the work with me and it's incredibly honoring for me to do that work and very painful to hear these stories. And I have so many stories um, that I have some trauma even from that. Um, some of the beliefs that are common for people with sexual trauma, it was my fault, very, very common. I'm not safe and the world's not safe and I can never be safe. And that I can't handle healing from this or the emotions that go with this. So the goal of the kind of therapy that I do is to help people process it in their bodies because it's kind of been lodged in their bodies and also to develop new beliefs. And I have to tell you, I see miracles every single day that would just blow your mind. People who have been serially molested their entire childhood into adulthood and raped multiple times and, you know, just things you can't even imagine. And... Um, coming to realize one of the most glorious moments in my practice is when I hear someone say for the first time, it wasn't my fault. That is a holy moment. And people realizing that they can enjoy sex and love their bodies and have pleasure in sex, that it just isn't all trauma and bad and being used seeing people's bodies heal and their believing body, their bodies are good. Um, and I've seen some people have really miraculous healings and I've also seen some people have a lot of healing but they also still need to be careful. Certain sexual positions or smells or things still trigger them. And that's okay, we're all in process. You don't have to be like, if you really love Jesus, you don't ever have any sexual trauma triggers. That is hooey that God is always healing and we're all in process. And so it can just be this process over time and God is good. He makes all things new. 
and he never sees anyone as damaged goods. We are all broken and in need of his healing and grace. All right, next one. This one's me too, man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Biblical boundaries about sex are outdated. Um, This one is a hard one for me, um, to be honest. I struggle with this one. Um, And so I'll just just say that. Um, We both grew up in completely secular homes. We were not raised with any sort of view of biblical boundaries around sex. Um, And I am ashamed to say that I, my first couple of years at McAllister, um, I became a Christian when I was a junior. Um, We had, I had some friends who were waiting till marriage to have sex. And we mocked them behind their back. Like, do people really still believe this? Like, is this the 1950s? Like, what is wrong with you? Um, And we have both come to believe, both from personal painful experience, but also, most importantly, from our study of Scripture, that God's, like in Psalm 16, it says God's boundary lines fall in pleasant places. Um, And I think this is the part that's hardest um, for me, something I still wrestle with, but I think what we have come to believe is that biblical boundaries around sex are sex within marriage that includes a covenant, which is a vow. You're promising to your partner and to the entire community um, between a man and a woman. And I know that that's not culturally a popular view. Um, again, people can have their different views. That's, that's what we have landed on. Um, and so I think... Um, it's, it's hard for us because we're just swimming in different, different views. I, you know, I'm a Christian therapist. I work at a Christian counseling center. And just this week, I was out to lunch with a whole bunch of my colleagues. And I have a colleague who's a Christian counselor. Um, and she lives with her boyfriend. And, and we were talking about, I told them I was doing this this weekend. And, and she was like, well, yeah, but I mean, that's ideal. But we don't really do that anymore. We don't really believe that anymore, you know. And so I think it's just something, I think 20 or 30 years ago maybe in the church, it was more of a this is what everybody believes, and it really isn't anymore. Um, And so I think it's one of those ones we have to search our hearts. We have to search scripture to decide what we think God has to say about that. Um, But we believe that they're not outdated and that these boundaries are the way to create space for sex to be the most flourishing, God-honoring, and safe. Sex is incredibly vulnerable and holy, and it needs clear boundaries around it to keep it well. And it's not to spoil our fun or to be puritanical or prudish, but for sex to actually thrive and flourish. And um, just a note about this, there's a lot of research on this, um, secular research, that these sorts of boundaries actually tend to be best for children lower divorce rates, things like that. It doesn't mean that individually, I mean, there can be individual Christian homes where kids aren't flourishing and homes with, that aren't in these boundaries that are flourishing, and, but more from a global population level, these boundaries are, are proving to be good for the community, good for kids, good for the divorce rate. Yeah, and uh, the only thing is that uh, we've come to this personally, but also that this is the stance of the church, the official stance of the church. So um, the next myth uh, is that the best way to enforce those biblical boundaries, those biblical uh, boundaries, is, is a fight-or-flight response. Now, i got to explain this a little bit. When you're in danger, all of us uh, 
we'll have uh, the, the prefrontal cortex of our brain, the thinking part of our brain turns off, and we either get into fight mode, we're ready to duke it out with whatever the danger is, or we get into flight mode, we want to flee, we want to run from uh, it as, as fast as, as we possibly can. And what a lot of Christians have done in the last, especially the last decade, is we see the biblical boundaries just crumbling all around us, and we see it crumbling inside of the church too. Um, we want to have a fight or a flight response. Uh, now, it's not always, it's not necessarily totally bad. Um, uh, the flight response, you know, the, the, the uh, Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, it says flee sexual immorality. So there is some fleeing involved. Uh, especially where, where we're in danger of being drawn into it. Um, and uh, the, the fight response, you know, sometimes uh, the call to love our neighbor requires us to, um, to be active and, and, and fight for good things, fight for right things and fight against bad things. But what I'm, what I'm worried about here and why this is a, this is a myth is that um, Christians sometimes in their fight, they want to dehumanize the enemy, they are the enemy. Those people are trying to foist their beliefs on us, and, and, and it, it turns into this dehumanizing those people. Rather than seeing them as created in the image of God, rather than seeing them as, as maybe uh, unfortunately misled or confused, uh, we, we want to say, no, those are the bad people, and if I can just fight against them and get them to shut up or change their mind or change their policy or get the school board to adopt this or whatever, uh, um, our hearts can be hard towards those people. And of course, we know from Ephesians chapter 6, our fight isn't against flesh and blood. Our fight is actually against powers and principalities, the spiritual forces uh, in heavenly places. Um, and then the flight mode, uh, sometimes, sometimes that is just fear-bound. Sometimes we want to avoid conversations. We want to avoid tricky, difficult uh, interactions. We want to avoid looking like the bad guy. We want to avoid uh, people's uh, bad opinion of us. Um, and so we go into flight mode. And so uh, the best way to enforce these biblical boundaries, uh, first off, is we need to live them ourselves. And we need to demonstrate to the world this really is good. These boundaries are delightful. Uh, Sarah quoted Psalm 16. Um, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And some Christians... They'll keep the boundaries, but they do so grudgingly. Well, I guess it's okay. The, the, the boundary lines fall in pleasant places. It's good. It's delightful. It's beautiful. It's, it's nourishing and beneficial when we stay in those boundaries. And so the best way is to be an example and then also to engage the world in a loving and humble way. So. Yeah, um, one of my favorite quotes is by a well-known Christian counselor named Dan Allender. And I'm going to say it twice just to soak it in. If you cannot see the image of God in the other person, you have no right to speak. And I'll say that again. If you cannot see the image of God in the other person, you have no right to speak. So I hold to that very closely as a therapist. If I'm counseling someone and I can't see the image of God in them, I have no right to speak into their life. And I think this, this fight or flight thing kind of creates this us-them mentality, and we have to move past that. It is not honoring to the idea that all are made in the image of God. We are all broken. There is no us and them. There's just us. Um, and just a word about language, tone, facial expressions. I, 
have to say it breaks my heart and just causes me incredible grief when I see Christians talk about certain kinds of sexuality with disrespect. You do not have to agree, but if you really believe that all people are made in the image of God, you must be respectful or say nothing. I mean, that's just Christianity 101, and a lot of us don't live by it. And if you can't tone down your eye rolling and your facial whatever, don't be engaged because you're not the one who's called to that fight. We must be respectful. And in, in light of this, to remember God is on the, front, the throne. He is not freaked out by what's happening in our culture. Like, do you actually believe that? God is not freaked out. There's nothing new under the sun. We need to approach sexual issues confident in him, not fighting or fleeing because we're afraid. If we really believe that God's good and he's on his throne, we can respond to cultural shifts in sexuality with trust, hope, and faith, not with mean-spirited disgust and eye-rolling and that kind of thing. And I think we need to really search our hearts about this. If you can't see the image of God in the person sitting across from you, you have no right to speak into their life. All right, next myth. All right, so maybe you've liked our myths so far, but I don't know if you're going to like this one. Because we're... I, I don't know that they have. We're, we're, oh, yeah, they haven't liked it, I can tell. All right, that's all right. This one you're going to hate. Okay, most of you. Um, because this, we're, we're going for the jugular here, okay, guys? You ready for the jugular? All right, the myth. You, you, you are, are entitled, entitled to be happily married to Mr. or Mrs. Wright. So, okay. <laughs> so we'll break this down a little bit. Um, this is one of the biggest myths believed by Christians. Frankly, it's a Christianized version of a Disney princess movie. It's based on a false belief that God has the one waiting in the wings for you. And really, it's just a part of the secular American dream for self-centered happiness and fulfillment in this life. It's based on a false belief in idolatry that exalts the nuclear family. And it's based on a newer false belief in idolatry that marriage is the route to personal fulfillment. And it feeds and is reinforced by related myths that marriage will solve all your sex issues and all your identity issues and desires for romance, fulfillment, loneliness, that is just not true. Marriage doesn't solve any of those issues, and, and actually what it does is it exposes them, which is beneficial because exposing them can bring healing and bring things into the light. But marriage will not solve your problems, and it will not solve your sexual problems. It just won't. And a call to singleness, celibacy, widowhood, single after divorce, etc., these are not consolation prizes. They're just not. If it's God's call, then it can be lived out with richness, abundance, deep community, and goodness. Both marriage and singleness can have healthy and unhealthy lived expression. We all need to live into whatever God has called us to in its fullness. But there's no evidence in the Bible that God has got the one for you and that you're entitled to a happy romance. It's just not in there. Maybe a little Bible with a little Disney princess, you could get there. <laughs> but if you search scripture, that's actually not 
what it says. Yeah. How does that relate to sex? Yeah, and so it, it, part of why this relates to sex is there uh, uh, one of the earlier myths that the, those boundaries no longer apply. This is actually behind that myth. Uh, there's a lot of people, a lot of Christians inside the church who are, who are saying, well, I know God's got the one for me, and I know, you know he's, he's got the Mr. or Mrs. Right for me, and so because I'm entitled to that, therefore, I'm going to uh, jump ahead of the, all that silly, you know, uh, all the preliminaries, and we're going to go and start enjoying sex now because he or she is probably going to be the one. And since I'm entitled to the one, um, and I got the one coming to me, um, that's, that's, uh, then it's okay, all right? That's how a lot of Christians, the logic a lot of Christians use in their justification of, of uh, the earlier myth that those boundaries no longer apply. And so, uh, so it, it, it uh, um, <laughs> this myth is one of the, the most um, confusing and delusional uh, myths that are out there, and Christians have embraced this with all of their heart. And so, uh, and, and even exalted this to sort of biblical status. It's, it's not in the Bible. So some people might actually need deliverance from believing this lie, possibly. So, and, 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 and this also, I, I don't know how many singles I've talked to who, because of this myth, are miserable in their singleness. And that's not okay. God has contentment and joy for you for whatever season of singleness, whatever your season of singleness might be however long, might be a lifetime, might be a very short time. I don't know how long it might be. God has contentment and joy for you. And instead of living like the, the grass is always greener on the other side and being miserable because of that, um, uh, that God has joy and strength and, and peace and contentment for you uh, right now. And, but, but to get there, you've got to take the, this myth and you've got you to gotta break it before God and crush it. All right, myth number eight. All right, uh, sexual purity is your ticket to the best and happiest life. Now, you heard us a little bit ago uphold uh, the sexual boundaries as still, the biblical sexual boundaries is saying they still apply, they're still good for us, the boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. All that is totally true, um, however, this idea right here is that if you stay sexually pure, then somehow you earn the happy life uh, later, whether it's in marriage or whether, you know, whatever it is. Um, sexual purity, we, uh, we are sexually pure at, out of uh, love and fear and respect and honor of God, and not because we can get something out of it or because our uh, apparent obedience is staying within the lines, is going to twist God's arm, and then God owes us that happiness. Um, this is actually part of, it's a very subtle and sneaky um, part of, the, uh, of what's called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a false doctrine. Uh, it's a false doctrine that says, if you just follow this formula, and there's all kinds of versions of the formula, whatever the formula is, that's going to lead to your happiness and your contentment and everything is going to be wonderful if you just follow this formula, okay? Um, as if somehow now God owes it to you. Um, it's not, so it's not biblical, uh, and, it's, and it's not that your ticket to happiness. Um, there's a lot of people 
Um, and again, Sarah and I didn't grow up in the Christian world, so we didn't, we weren't, we sort of saw this as we were becoming Christians, but a lot of people our age uh, in the Christian world grew up in what's sometimes called the purity movement. Uh, there's some good things interwoven in it, but part of the problem with the purity movement was they kept putting this promise out before people. Uh, you know, if you would just stay within the lines and just stay, just stay there, everything's going to be great. Uh, well, then what happens? Uh, people stayed within the lines, they got to marriage, and they had a terrible marriage. Um, or, uh, you know, and things didn't work out. Um, but part of the problem is what was the idol they were searching after was this happiness, and they were viewing purity as the ticket. There are no tickets in the Bible to happiness. If, if, if you look at anything, whether it's sexual purity or anything, as a ticket, your, your, your brain, your mind is going in the wrong direction. Um, any comments on that? I just, yes. And, um, you know, doing a lot of marriage counseling, I would say I see this a lot with Christian couples where people feel really ripped off by God. We did it all right. We followed the plan. And we have a horrible sex life. And that's not fair. And God is holding out on us. And I think it starts with this. We need to be really careful about entitlement or being embittered toward God because we feel like he's holding out on us. All right. Um, now this one, we're just going to get more and more controversial, guys. Um, <clears throat> sexual purity is best achieved by doubling down on your gender. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, so as sometimes as part of this purity movement, and sometimes as other, there's other sources of this, the idea behind this is that if you um, would just... Um, uh, if, 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 you would, if, if you would, for example, I'm going to give you some examples to make it clear. Um, uh, men, it's, the assumption is men will be more pure if they view themselves as in their sort of more masculine role as a protector. Uh, or women would be more pure if they would just view themselves in their feminine role as sort of the, the bride-in-waiting. Um, now, th there's, there's some truth interwoven in this. Like, there's always truth interwoven in, in all these things. But this basic idea that if you just double down on being more masculine if you're a man and more feminine if you're a woman, um, and, and again, that God might, be having, might have you on the path to do that because that's part of sort of a broader healing, but that isn't what is going to um, keep you sexually pure. Um, and why? Well, well, first off, it doesn't prevent lust in your heart, okay? Just because a man sees himself as a protector, it might give him a little pause in... Uh, you know, uh, acting out on uh, taking advantage of someone, but it doesn't necessarily prevent the lust in his heart. Um, it doesn't stop the essential selfishness uh, that, that, that is the heart of lust. In fact, it appeals to selfishness. You're, you're, uh, you're more special and a better person because you're a protector. Um, it appeals to kind of this pride. Um, and uh, it also doesn't stop the dehumanization in fact, it actually makes dehumanizing the other gender worse. Um, if, uh, if you see, uh, if you're a man and you see women as only a bride in waiting, and that's all they are to you, it's sort of like this two-dimensional thing, um, rather than the multi-dimensional, multi fully complex human that the other person is. And the thing that stops, one of the things that stops lust, that kind of stops it in its tracks, is not, oh, she's a, a bride-to-be, uh, but she's a human being with thoughts and feelings, and they're complex thoughts and feelings, and they're as complex as my thoughts and feelings. And uh, that she has problems, and she has interests, and she has 
challenges and to see them as the fully complex, multidimensional human being that he or she is. That, that's one of the things, that's one of the ways we stop lust in the heart versus just doubling down on your gender. Yeah, well said. Um, and I just want to add to this, um, this one is near and dear to my heart. I wish we could spend an entire time just on this one. Um, there's a lot of myths related to this. Um, a lot of things that I see in my practice, but I think are just in the culture, things like men are more interested in sex. It's just not necessarily true. I mean, it, sometimes, but a lot of women are really interested in sex. And I sit with couples where the woman has a stronger sex drive than the man, and then has shame about that. You know, it, there's not like this sort of gender stereotyping is just not helpful. Only men struggle with porn. One of the fastest growing demographics of people who struggle with porn is adult women. It's just not only men that struggle with porn. Um, and it just like us to just be overall cautious about gender st stereotypes. Men are like this, and women are like this, um, and about assigning roles to men and women. As we were preparing for this, I was thinking about my own journey with this in the church, and you know, again, I could talk about this for hours, but a heartbreaking reality for me is that I was raised completely outside of the church, and I remember when I was seven years old, it was the 1980 election, Reagan, Carter, and Anderson or somebody, and my dad put me on a stool and said, Madam President, what would your poly, and he like, you know, quizzed me like I was the president, and I was a pretty smart seven-year-old, and I had all kinds of thoughts, and I was, I knew that I could be president of the United States. And it wasn't until I entered the church in my early 20s that I began to doubt that there were things that I could do. That women did this, and men did this. And we are all uniquely created by God. I happen to be a woman with a lot of leadership gifts, and I'm kind of feisty, and you know, like, I maybe don't fit some of those gender stereotypes. So a myth that only men initiate sex, that doesn't work for us. Like, that's going to, you know, we both do that. Or that only men can lead in X, Y, or Z area. We just have to be very cautious. The number of Christian couples I sit with where the women are miserable because their hus husband isn't leading in a certain area when what's obvious to me from the minute I meet her is that she has leadership gifts in that area and she doesn't use them, is heartbreaking. And this is true for sex, devotions, whatever the thing is. We gotta be really careful about doubling down on our gender to keep ourselves safe. All right, the last, last one. Last myth, I know, coming in for a landing, can you believe it? Okay, last myth. Um, sexual purity's greatest enemy is too much desire. Sexual purity's greatest enemy is too much desire. So in my practice, I see a lot of people, what I would call white knuckling their areas of desire, frequently sex, but lots of other things. Kind of like sheer willpower is going to keep me from doing wrong in that area. Um, and they're trying to like beat down their longings and desires. And I actually believe, we believe, that you actually need to honor and explore your desires and longings and get them met in the right place. And I'm not saying simplistically like, if you're sexually aroused, go pray, though that would be a good idea, potentially, but more of a broader honoring of our longings and desires, getting curious about them and bringing them before God. 
longings and desires are actually from God, and he wants to meet them. Um, and he doesn't want us like frantically white-knuckling our desires and trying to control ourselves. And willpower is a finite resource. There's actually really interesting research on this. It's a finite resource, and most of us use it up way before the end of the day. So we need to have another way to manage our longings and desires and to honor them. Yeah, so rather, rather than when uh, lust comes up or something, um, <clears throat> uh, asking the question, what's underneath that? What is the longing and desire? Rather than just rushing to get that met as quickly as possible, gratifying that desire, what, what is that desire about? What, what's the deeper desire, the longing that's underneath that? Um, and, and what I would suggest, and this is what we want to leave you with today, is uh, what's underneath all of our desires ultimately is a desire for intimacy with God. Whether you feel it or not, whether you've known it or not, whether you've just got a little taste of it or not, uh, ultimately underneath everything, there is this deeper desire for intimacy with God. And, but what we do is, so if, if uh, uh, we have this longing for God that, that we kind of suppress or don't really realize, and, and then desire comes up, and then, then we instantly want to gratify it with something, and that just sort of distracts us from the deeper, greater desire for God. I have a quote here from uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, this is what he says. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. And and I want to invite you to on a journey that if you find yourself trapped in sexual desire uh, that feels out of control to you um, and and you realize that you're far too easily pleased by that little desire, I want to invite you onto a journey of discovering the much greater fulfillment, in fact, the infinite fulfillment God has for you and for me in knowing him. Um, the real reason our desires are out of control is not because we desire so strongly, too strongly, it's because we desire too little. And we settle for fulfillment through whatever it is, instead of infinite joy. And that's why uh, probably almost anybody in this room, if you've lived life more than 10 years, you have felt, you've tried to satisfy that desire with something, whether it might be sexual or something else, and, and you've discovered how empty it is. It fades away. It goes away and leaves you empty and hungry again. And that's because God, God is not going to let you feel fulfilled until you discover the fullness of joy that's in him. Um, next week, I'm going to be sharing much more of my personal story of how I discovered this and how God used this, this very idea to transform my life and uh, actually bring a, a life that was was sexually out of control uh, into God's will, and uh, and and it started with the truth. It's in your. It's in. Uh, we wrote it in your uh, bulletin. It says in Psalm 16, verse 11, um, God, you show me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and eternal pleasures 
forevermore. What if you got to taste and feel and experience the fullness of joy and pleasures that never end? So uh, if the worship team could come on up, and uh, we are, uh, if the um, elders and spouses and any other prayer people who are present, if you could come on up. Uh, we've got a bunch of extra time today, and uh, we are, before we uh, dismiss people with a benediction, um, we want to invite people to come forward for a prayer. If, if, if any of these myths, if you find any of these myths are holding you back, um, and, uh, and you find that sex is, or the romance around it, or the relationship around it, or anything like that, if that's the idol that needs to come tumbling down, this is a great time to come to God. Um, Sarah and I are going to be up here praying. Um, other elders and spouses, if you guys could, uh, and, and other prayer people could come up and uh, uh, pray, um, be ready to pray, and, um, and then... After we, we worship for a little bit and people get prayed for, I'm going to close this in a benediction. We want to abide in you. We want to walk in your ways. And we want to discover the infinite joy that is better than everything else. The fullness of joy and the pleasures forevermore that are in you. So, as we go from this place, I'm going to ask that the love of God the Father, God who is rich in love, would go with you. Pray that the strength of the Holy Spirit, who strengthens us to keep his ways, the strength of the Holy Spirit would go with you. And the mercy of Jesus, who says, I have taken your sins and I have thrown them as far as the east is from the west, would go with you. The love of God the Father, the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.